You're listening to the Technology for Mindfulness podcast, episode 35, hosted by me, Robert Plotkin. Today I'm going to be speaking with Nir Eyal, an expert in how we form habits and the author of Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. Nir has taught at the Stanford Graduate School of Business and the Stanford Design School. Nir writes both about how companies can create behaviors that benefit their users and also about how people can build healthful habits in their own lives. You can find out more about Nir and read his writings at nearandfar.com. That's N-I-R-A-N-D-F-A-R.com. We're extremely pleased to welcome Nir Eyal to the Technology for Mindfulness podcast. In the upcoming interview with Nir Eyal, Nir will be talking both about how companies can create products that encourage the development of habits and also about how we as users of technology can think mindfully and act mindfully to create our own healthy habits. And in today's tip, I'm going to suggest development of just one very simple habit that I've developed and maintained and used in connection with my use of email. And if you're like me, I'm sure you've experienced the attempt to get through old emails, important emails, ones that have been lingering around for a while, and that when you go into your inbox, you might start going through those old emails, but as new emails come in, they grab your attention because they pop up at the top of your inbox, and before you know it, you're responding to new emails instead of getting through those old, sometimes very important and overdue messages. So I have one tip for you today for a habit you can develop to try to address this problem, which is to filter your email inbox so that it does not show new messages. All the email software out there allows you to do this. Spend a couple of minutes creating a view with a filter that doesn't show you any email older than, let's say, a day or even an hour. And then the habit here is to set aside some time as little as once a day when you're going to turn on that view with that filter so that when you go into your inbox, you'll only see old messages. And as new messages arrive, they won't pop up on your screen. And this will give you a way to read through and respond to those old, often important, often overdue emails without the distraction of new emails popping up. And as soon as you're done, you might set aside 10 minutes for this, half an hour for this, maybe an hour. Whatever amount of time you set aside, you can then switch back your view to the normal view where all emails appear, including the new ones as they arrive. But for this to work, you need to build this as a habit so that you do it regularly. Give it a shot. I hope you find it helpful, and I hope you enjoy the upcoming interview with Nir Eyal.
Hi, Nir, and welcome to the Technology for Mindfulness podcast. Thank you. So good to be here. I'm really glad to have you here. You have a, a really uh, unique uh, background, uh, which makes you, um, I think, particularly well-suited to talk about technology-driven habit formation. You, you've been behind the development of products that uh, encourage the formation of habits. Did you also write and speak a lot about uh, the consumer side of habit formation, how to be aware of how, as a consumer or user of products, your habits are formed and how to engage in what I think of as uh, self-defense almost. It's a very unusual <laughs> perspective and one I really appreciate. I can't tell you how many times I've read an article about this topic and I say, that's really great and insightful. And then I look and it was written by you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, that's a huge compliment. I really appreciate that. And I, I think that, you know, it's, it's, there's a, a great quote that I can't remember who said it, but somebody said that truth is found in the contradictions. And, and I, I, I apologize that I don't know who that said. Somebody can look that up and maybe maybe tell us who said that. But I, I really think that, that that says a lot. That you know, if if you want uh, if you want good and evil, right? If you want the big tech <laughs> companies to be the bad guys and the you know the big business is out to get you. If you want good and bad, go watch Star Wars. That's that's where you can find right. good and evil. I don't think that's real life. The, the fact is, real life is more complicated. It's not just about these big companies who want to addict you and enslave you and hijack your brain. It's just so simplistic, and the story's been told. And every time there's a new technology, people have this moral panic, and we forget. One, all the good things that these products give us and how, how wonderful it's made our lives. But then also, I think we often forget how powerful we are and how much we can do. You know, we, we kind of just give over our will uh, and, and say, well, you know, maybe Congress will regulate them, those geniuses in Washington. <laughs> or, or maybe, you know, well, we'll just shut them down and, and, and stop using them altogether. But that's also not realistic. So I really wanted was on the hunt for how do we live with these technologies get the most out of them, but make sure they don't take over our lives. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about, you know, how, how that influences you when you work on designing products or uh, advising companies on how to do that in a way that is effective, results in a business model that's profitable and also respectful of users' attention. Right. So I think, you know, the, 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 the there's two forms of, uh, of, of psychological manipulation, I guess you could say. And, and uh, those two forms are persuasion and coercion. And, uh, you know, manipulation has kind of a bad connotation. It's always seen as negative. But I would argue that that's not really true, that in fact, we pay for the privilege of being manipulated. If the definition of manipulation is, 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 is changing uh, our behaviors or changing our emotions, that doesn't necessarily have to be something that, that uh, hurts us. In fact, you know, we pay for the privilege to go to a movie theater and see flickers of light that we know are not real with actors who we know are just acting, uh, convinced us that, that, that they're having a human experience up there on the screen. Uh, we like magic shows. We enjoy uh, experiences that are designed to make us feel something. So it's not that these, these things are necessarily evil. Persuasion is when we help people do things they want to do, whereas coercion is getting them to do something they don't want to do. And uh, you know, as a rule, not only is coercion 
unethical and we shouldn't do it, but it's also horrible for business. Uh, in this day and age, if uh, you get someone to do something they later regret, not only are they going to badmouth you, not only are they not going to ever use your product again, but they're going to tell all their friends on social media why you're a horrible company. So I never advise companies to do anything that users will regret. I call it the regret test, that if the user knew everything that you know, would they do the behavior you've designed for them to do? And it turns out that when we ask that question, we really weed out a lot of these potentially coercive tactics. Uh, whereas persuasion, there's nothing wrong with persuasion. If we can help design an app using the same psychology that Facebook uses to keep us hooked and that uh, Instagram and WhatsApp and uh, YouTube all use these techniques, why can't we use these same techniques to help people save money or exercise more or eat healthier or connect with friends and family or be more productive at work? We can use the exact same techniques for good. Yeah, I really, I really appreciate that perspective. Uh, it sounds like maybe analogous to informed consent, as long as people know what it is they're getting into and seek it out and uh, adopt it voluntarily. I really like the movie analogy. I happen to know someone who is a hypnotist, and he's told me, look, we, in, in essence, uh, get hypnotized pretty frequently throughout our day. Watching a movie, reading a book internally is an experience that's very much like uh, hypnotism and that your mm. mind is being uh, pulled along by suggestive language or images to uh, adopt the belief temporarily that something is true. You know, we call it suspension of disbelief. Mm. And as you said, when we do that voluntarily and when we know that that's what's happening to us, nothing necessarily wrong with it. Right. I, I guess I, you know, this, we may be splitting hairs here, but I actually think that, um, uh, informed consent is not enough. I think informed consent has led us to these terms of service contracts where lawyers say, well, you know, you knew this, uh, 35 page <laughs> document written in legalese, you know, you, you knew that we were going to go sell your data. I, I, I think that's actually too low of a bar because obviously, you know, okay, we, great. Uh, it's, I think the, the industry can do better. And I think that the way we can do better is to ask ourselves this regret test that if the user knew everything that you as the designer knew, would they still do it? Uh, so there's nothing wrong with people clicking through that terms of service list and not knowing what's in the list. As long as the designer, when they design that product or service, held themselves up to the standard of, of knowing and I would say testing, like actually going out and bringing in real users, which we in the industry do all the time. When we're designing a new interface, we ask customers to come in to try our product and we get feedback on, on what they think about the product. We should do the same for this ethics test of the regret test of if they knew what was in the fine print? If they knew what, what we would do with their data, would mm -hmm. they still do the behavior? And if the answer is no, you can't release it. You can't publish. Uh, you can't <laughs> do that, that thing that you've designed. Well, let me ask you, I'm just curious, uh, how, how widespread do you think uh, this de design philosophy is that you're promoting right now? How, how far has it gone and how, how many designers do you think are, are latching on to it? Uh, based on, I'm sure, you, you being a primary promoter of it for years? Uh, between zero and 1%, <laughs> unfortunately. Uh, and not because I don't, but I don't think that's, a, that's because people don't want to use it. I think they just haven't heard about it yet. Uh, I, I, I unfortunately uh, don't know how to get in front of enough people to get them to adopt this strategy. I, as, as, a, as an author, 
spent a lot of time coming up with this test. It doesn't look like it. It sounds simple. Uh, but I, it took me literally years of combing through different ethical frameworks uh, to come up with an answer to what I thought was the existing test, which is you know Google's famous, don't be evil, which I think is, is stupid mm-hmm. <laughs> because it's not practical. <laughs> uh, it's totally subjective uh, and nobody actually uses it. And then, of course, you know, we see what happened, right? Google's evil all over the place. Um, so it obviously doesn't work. In fact, they don't, that's not really their motto anymore. It's kind of an unofficial motto. So I wanted something else. And it took me a long time to come up with an answer for what designers can, can say to their boss to say, hey, boss, you know, I don't think this meets the regret test. Well, let's go out and test it and see. Um, unfortunately, you know, this happens a lot with authors. We try and come up with ideas, uh, but then we are not experts in terms of disseminating or, uh, you know, holding people accountable to use those ideas. (laughs) So that's where I could use some help. (laughs) Sure, sure. And, you know, I hope people listening to the podcast latch onto that and anyone who, who can help, you know, I hope takes whatever action they can to spread the word. And I do wonder, uh, whether it's more than just lack of knowledge by people. I would have to think that there are people who would be skeptical of whether adopting this approach would be good for business. Have you faced that kind of skepticism from people? You know, I, I, I haven't with the exception of one type of industry. You know, when I propose this regret test, I've, I've in general heard uh, very positive things because, you know, the long-term interests of these companies is for people to not regret their product or the, the using the product. And, and we see this, even if people haven't formally adopted this, this test, you know, we see companies like Facebook taking measures uh, to move away from, for example, just raw time spent on site, which is what they used to track, to track well-being and time well spent is now what Zuckerberg has said they're going mm-hmm. to track. And, mm-hmm. and this is very much in line with the regret test, right? It is bad for business when people regret using your product. And so by adopting such a metric, they're de facto you know, moving the company more towards this, this type of rule. The one, comp- the one type of company that I have received pushback from uh, are the kind of companies that I will not work with, meaning even if they pay me lots of money, uh, I will not, uh, under any circumstances, work for those companies. Uh, and those companies are the kind of companies that rely upon addicts. Uh, now, what do I mean by that? Mm-hmm. There is, in the industry... So in certain industries, I should say, uh, there are the kind of, of, of companies that rely upon what, what's called whales, meaning companies that rely upon the one to two percent of, of users who supply 80 to 90 percent of the revenue. And we see this across mm-hmm. the board in many products and services that are designed to be addictive. And they not only are designed to be addictive, but they look for those whales. We see this, and these are the, I'm going to list out the type of companies I won't work with. We see this in uh, the alcohol industry I won't work with. We see this with the tobacco industry I won't work with. We see this with pornography, gambling, uh, you know, gaming companies, some uh, online gaming companies, not all, but some, particularly free-to-play games, mm-hmm. look for the whales. And I think that's unethical because you know, being addicted, you know, really addicted, I'm not talking about uh, most of us, 99% of us who like something a lot and sometimes use it more than we'd like. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the people who want to stop using the product, but can't. That's unethical, right? Because now it's coercion. Mm-hmm. Now you're, you're getting the user to do something they don't want to do. 
Uh, and you find this with people who are addicted to cigarettes. They don't like being addicted. They wish they could quit the vast majority of those people. Uh, and, and alcoholics, same story. They're not, you know, they're not loving being slaves to alcohol. Uh, so that's unethical to, to go after those people. Uh, so those are the kind of companies that I won't work with. That's really very helpful. And I think, tell me if I'm right, this is consistent with the, with the regret test and helps explain uh, what the difference would be between just a habit and something that is addictive. Uh, not all habits would necessarily constitute addictions. Absolutely. Yeah, this is a great uh, differentiation. And I'm so glad you mentioned it because I think a lot of people get this wrong where they think, you know, we call everything addicted to today. If I like chocolate, I'm addicted to chocolate. If I like, you know, my wife got a, a box of shoes from DSW and it says on the side of the box that's shipped to our house, careful, addictive contents inside. So we've gone kind of gone <laughs> crazy with addiction and that everything's addictive. And it's really watered down the term, I think, to a, a detrimental extent because by definition, an addiction is something that implies a lack of control. Right, it implies that you are, it, to some degree, powerless. That, in fact, uh, the definition of an addiction is a persistent compulsive dependency on a behavior or substance that harms the user. So it's something that we depend upon that we cannot do without, which by itself isn't a problem, right? I depend upon my wife. I depend upon food. I depend upon lots of things in my life, but also harms me. You know, I use it to such an extent that it is causing me harm, and that's that's an addiction, as opposed to a habit is simply a behavior done with little or no conscious thought. And we have good habits as well as, as bad habits, but these are things that, that with uh, enough conscious thought, with you know, we, we can break these habits if we try. And so that's why it's so important to differentiate between the two. Can you talk a little bit then about you know, healthy habit formation? Uh, and, and although this might be obvious, you know, what is healthy about a good healthy habit? What's beneficial to people about forming new habits? Sure. So if I have a, a healthy habit to change my diet, right, if I can form a habit that with little or no conscious thought, I prefer healthy food over unhealthy food, that would be a healthy habit in my mind. If I build a habit to do, a, uh, to, to move more throughout my day, to go on walks, to uh, uh, maybe go to the gym, to, to do things that uh, benefit my body. If I can get into a habit around learning uh, some new uh, some new information, right? I, I listen to audiobooks out of habit or learn a new language. That would be a healthy habit. Um, so there's lots and lots of things that we could do. Or, you know, if you think about how terrible the state of most software that we have to use, I mean, the, you know, if you think about in the workplace, all the horrible enterprise software that poor workers are subjected to <laughs> that they have to use or, or even consider, you know, interacting with government services. I mean, how horrible are these, uh, these technologies that mm -hmm. we're supposed to be using that are supposed to make my, our lives easier, but they're so poorly designed that, that we don't get what we want done. So the, the real problem is not that a few companies like Facebook and Twitter have, have designed technologies to suck us in. The real problem is that most technology sucks. It's awful. And so that's why I do what I do. I don't teach Facebook and Google how to build these products. They already know these techniques. I'm out there to try right. and teach the rest of us, right? The people who are building these technologies to try and use the same psychology to make the kind of products that people want to use. And we, I, we've been dancing a little bit around this, but uh, I wonder then if you could talk about uh, either some examples of technologies that do what you'd consider to be a really great job of helping people to develop 
healthy habits and, and use that as a way to, ex- to just make this concrete for people from the, it's an unusual perspective to be uh, looking at product design from a habit formation lens without uh, it being something that is intended to addict people. At least most people I think would think of it that way. So could you make right. it uh, concrete for us? Absolutely. So I'm just looking at the home screen of my phone at this very moment and I see several uh, habit forming products that are that are on my phone right now. Uh, one is called Fitbot, which uh, uh, really changed the way I, I exercise. Now Fitbot uses a machine learning to uh, solve this problem of that I had of every time I would go to the gym, uh, I wouldn't know what to do, right? I, I'm not a, a muscle man kind of guy. I don't, I don't, you know, I don't know what to do when I got to the gym. So I'd, <laughs> I'd mess around and pick up some weights and throw them in the air and then I would have no clue what I'm doing. <laughs> well, this app comes along and, and someone brought it to my attention and it, it, it turns, uh, exercise into a habit, into something done with little or no conscious thought. I don't have to think about what to do. The app just tells me. Mm-hmm. And so it, it, and what's brilliant about it is that it uses this hook model that I describe in my book hooked, uh, to, to make me stronger. And it does this by constantly changing. It has variable rewards. It uses the exact same psychology that keeps people, uh, hooked onto games or Facebook. It uses the same exact techniques to get me to exercise more and, and, and exercise smarter. Uh, so every time I go to the gym, I, I, I open the app. It tells me what exercise to do, how much, uh, weight to lift, uh, how many reps to do everything. And so I, I have, to, I, it, it's, it's helped me not have to think about this problem and just do habitually what it's telling me to do. Another app that I think is fantastic that I've built uh, habits around is an app called Pocket. Now, Pocket is an app that you can save articles uh, to, and it scrubs out all the ads and, and, and you know, junk that you see uh, online. You know, if you go to the New York Times or Washington Post or somewhere and you start reading, you're going to see all these ads and links to try and get you to keep reading and reading and reading. Uh, that's by design, right? They're trying to hook you just as well. Uh, well, Pocket has this Chrome extension that I use that uh, whenever I see an article I want to read online, I have a rule because I know how these products work that I never read on my desktop. Every time I see something I want to read, I read it later by saving it to this app and it sends it to my phone. And then I can listen to the content through the app. So what I'm doing is I'm using a technique called temptation bundling, where you use something that is rewarding, that uh, feels good, uh, to help you do something that you don't really like to do. So when do I listen to my articles? I listen to them on walks. I listen to them when I'm on the gym, when I'm in the gym. And that provides the reward to do these behaviors I otherwise don't really uh, necessarily enjoy. Uh, That's when I'm allowed to listen to this content. So not only do I save time not scrolling around, wasting time reading articles ad nauseum online, but I'm also uh, rewarding healthy behaviors that I want to do later all through these habit-forming products. Those are really, really good examples. Um, Thanks very much for them. And, you know, a few times you mentioned an aspect of healthy habits uh, that's interesting to me. It involves uh, eliminating the need for us to engage in conscious choice. And, you know, there's a very strong value uh, in in the U.S. of choice. Mm. We we value choice. It's almost uh, uh, a religious mm. <laughs> attachment we have to choice. You know, one of my favorite books of the last 20 years, in addition to the stuff you've written, is The Paradox <laughs> of Choice, you know, which, which really talks yeah. of, 
Yeah, you know, uh, that was a real eye opener for me where he says, look, we, we value choice so much, but there can actually be something uh, there. There can be such a thing as too much choice where, where too much choice uh, limits our freedom. Right. Uh, and I wonder how it's it's I hear shades of that in you talking about habit formation where uh, limiting our need to exercise choice can actually be healthier for us. Can you talk about that? Right. No, I, th- I think you're absolutely right that habits are great. Uh, we, we need habits in order to go about our day-to-day lives. It's just our brain's way to, of putting some things on autopilot. In fact, about 40% of what we do every day is uh, driven by these, these non-conscious processes. So uh, we, can, we can utilize these habits. We can hack these habits to live the kind of lives we want so that we don't consciously have to think about every little thing we do. Uh, we can simplify our lives and get more done and be happier in our day-to-day lives. Uh, through these these habits, and these these have been around for a very very long time. And if, if you think about organized religion, what what is organized religion, if not a series of habits of mind as well as habits of behavior, mm-hmm. uh, rituals and prayers and customs and uh, ideologies? All of these are habits, and and I would uh, point to religion as a as a testament as to uh, something that humans inherently need. The universality of, of of spirituality and and organized religion, I think, reveals something about the human condition. Uh, it, it, it is it is a constructed habit that I think benefits many people's lives. Now, in, in, I think what we're seeing with technology is that technology uh, can help us in many ways. I mean, if you think if you talk to certain, some authors like Yuval Harari, will tell you that technology is becoming the new religion. Uh, that that we're relying upon technology to tell us, uh, you know, who, who, what to do in our lives. And I think that sounds scary, but it also has some some amazing. Upside. Uh, every new technology uh, sounds scary. Every new social way of being sounds scary, right? For the longest time, people didn't want uh, didn't want gays and lesbians marrying because it sounds icky, right? But there's no good reason why they shouldn't marry. Uh, so, but even though you know, 20 years ago, people didn't want it to happen because that's the way it's always been done. Well, I, I think we are moving towards a future where technology assists us in helping better decisions through habit. I think it's already happening, right? If uh, if I go from place a, point A to point B, uh, I'm going to open up Google Maps to help me figure out the the, the best route to get there. Uh, I'm already reliant on on, on products like those uh, out of mm-hmm. habit, uh, and by and large, I think that's very beneficial. Of course, there will be downsides. So let me be very clear: I, I, I'm not a uh, you know a cockeyed optimist here. I realize that there will be downsides. I, I think Paul Varillo said it best when he said that uh, you can't invent the ship with also inventing the shipwreck. So we do need to be aware of these potential downsides of what happens when we give a product too much control. Uh, I think that's something we should definitely be aware of. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit. You've been, uh, we've been focusing a lot on the role that product designers can play in creating products that uh, encourage the development of healthy habits. Now let's go to the consumer user side of things. Uh, based on the assumption that not all products will be designed according to your principles. Mm-hmm. Uh, what can people do to help uh, maybe protect themselves is the wrong word, but seek out products and use products in a way that is most 
likely to help them develop healthy habits. Yeah, terrific. So this is actually the subject of my next book. So my first book was Hooked, about how to build habit-forming products to build healthy habits in users' lives. My next book, which will be out in uh, early 2019, is called Indistractable. And I, I wrote this book because for the past five years, I've struggled with this question of, you know, how do we manage distraction. It's, it's an age-old question. I started with technology because we have all these new mediums that have, have, uh, have, have, have popular appeal now through our devices. Uh, and, and we need answers to these questions around particularly what do we do with, with uh, this problem of tech distraction. But then the more I dove into it and started researching, I realized that this is an age-old problem, that people have been struggling with distraction Forever, uh, you know, Socrates and Plato debate the nature of this word they coined called acrasia, uh, which means the tendency to do things against our better judgment. So, you know, for, for, for millennia, humans have struggled with doing things they didn't want to do. And so this book tries to answer, how do we get ourselves to do what we say we are going to do? It's as simple as that. And, I, and as simple and, and, and as that question is, literally, you know, all of us have asked ourselves that. Why didn't I exercise? Why didn't I eat healthier? Why didn't I, you know, <laughs> do the thing I said I was going to do? Uh, I didn't find great answers, at least not to, to my satisfaction. And so I started writing this book called Indistractable. And what I found was is that there's a lot of piecemeal techniques, and I wanted kind of an organizing framework. I wanted a picture that I could use in my mind when I got distracted to figure out why I got distracted and what to do about that distraction. There's a lot of books out there telling you about the problem of how horrible it is that we're lacking focus and that we're all so distracted these days. But what do you do? <laughs> uh, and so, and, and, you know, what do we do in a tech-positive way? Because the solution is not you know, dump your technology. This, that doesn't make any sense. I, right. I need technology for my livelihood. I, I can't go live in a cave somewhere and disconnect. That doesn't work. And just like, a, you know, there's a, people are advocating for digital detoxes and digital Sabbaths where you turn off everything. Well, that's like taking a diet, right? It's like a fad diet that, you know, I'm going right. to get skinny because I'm not going to eat for, for a few days. Well, you know, when you start eating again, you're going to gorge, you're going to go swing back the other way. And so we need to figure out how to live with it in a, in a healthy way. And so here's the mental picture. So if you kind of close your eyes here, I'll draw the picture for you. So in the middle, picture a circle and inside that circle, the word actions. Now to the right of that circle is an arrow pointing to the right. And that is, that arrow is called traction. Those are things that move you towards what you want, actions you take that move you towards what you want. Now, on the other side, to the left from that circle with the word actions in it is the opposite of traction, which is distraction, actions that you take that mm. move you away from what you want, things that are driven by acrasia, this tendency to do things against our better judgment. So those are, 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 are uh, the dichotomy between actions we take that move us towards what we want, traction, or move us away, distraction. Now, what affects how that ball in the middle moves? How, how do we affect things that move towards distraction or traction? That, our, our actions are moved based on our triggers, and there are two types of triggers. So you can imagine two arrows pointing into that ball, one from the top and one from the bottom. Uh, at the top is internal triggers, and at the bottom is external triggers. Now, let me explain both of those. Mm -hmm. External triggers are things in our environment that prompt us to action that leads towards traction and distraction. So an external trigger might be something like uh, a phone call, a ping, a ding, a ring, something that prompts you to action. Now, there's nothing inherently bad 
about these external triggers. It's what we do in response to them that matters. So if you plan to pick up that phone call and that's what you schedule, then, then that external trigger moved you towards traction. It, it helped you. But if that phone call interrupted the focused work you were doing, and now you, you're doing something you didn't plan to do, now it's moved you towards distraction. So uh, the first step is to analyze these external triggers to understand these pings, dings, and rings in our environment and do something about it. You know, fully two-thirds of people who own a smartphone never adjust their notification settings. Okay, let me say that again. Two-thirds of people with a smartphone <laughs> never change their notification. Are you kidding? <laughs> I mean, how can we even claim with a straight face that technology is addictive and we're powerless when we haven't even taken five minutes to turn off those goddamn notifications that don't serve us? So we have to ask ourselves this fundamental question of which triggers serve us and move towards traction and which one hurt us and move towards distraction. So that the, all those external triggers, there's a, there's a whole chapter in the book on how to do that uh, and which techniques you can use. But then there's this other type of trigger, uh, which I mentioned earlier, which actually is more important than the external triggers. And these are internal triggers. Internal triggers are these prompts to action that come from inside our own heads. And this is why I like to say that distraction starts from within, because the icky sticky truth that we don't like to acknowledge, at least many people, you, you know this already, but most people don't, is mm -hmm. that so much of what we do is driven by these uncomfortable emotional states, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's the fear, it's the loneliness, it's the boredom, it's the uncertainty, it's the fatigue that we don't want to feel. We want to numb it away. And many times we numb it away with our distractions, right? We turn on the TV, mm -hmm. listen to the radio, we look at our phones because we don't want to feel something. And so that's why managing these internal triggers, if we don't tackle these internal triggers and find ways to cope in a healthier manner, we will always be distracted. If it's not Facebook, it's the newspaper. If it's not the newspaper, it's the television. If it's not that, it's something will constantly distract <laughs> us because we haven't dealt with what's inside. So that's the internal trigger. And there's lots of techniques in the book that I, I mentioned on how do we learn to cope with that discomfort of the internal trigger. And then finally, there's these, you know, that we talked about the two sides to come back full circle. Right is traction, left is distraction. There are techniques that we can do to make traction more likely. Uh, for example, you know, it turns out that only about a third of people actually plan their day. Well, you can't call something a distraction unless you knew what, unless you know what it distracted you from. So if you don't have on your calendar what you plan to do, then you can't call the thing you didn't get to a distraction, right? You have to, you have to plan your day. And there's lots of techniques around how do we plan our day, how do we coordinate with our family, with our work environment so that we plan our day accordingly. And then finally, distraction. How do we make distraction less likely? Well, here we can use PACTs, and this is where we can use technology to fight technology overuse. Uh, it turns out there are thousands of apps out there uh, and websites and, and, and different tools, almost all of them are free, that we can use to make a pact with ourselves to make distraction less likely. So I'll just give you a couple examples. I use an app on my mm -hmm. phone called Forest. Uh, every day when I need to do my focused work time, I open this app, I type in how much time I want to do focused work for, and if I pick up my phone and do anything other than my focused work, my little tree, this little virtual tree dies. 
Now it's just a stupid little virtual tree, mm-hmm. right? It doesn't mean anything, but it's enough to remind right. me, hey, you know what? You, you've made a commitment here. You made a pact with yourself to focus and do one thing for this amount of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, another tool I use is an app called TimeGuard, which blocks out distracting websites like YouTube or Instagram during certain times mm-hmm. of the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so these tools are free. Anyone can use them. We just need the will to go out there and look. So this is why I... I really bristle when people say that technology is addictive and that it's uh, irresistible or that it's hijacking our brain because this gives us the impression that we're all somehow addicted, that we're all powerless. And I've just shown you all of these techniques that prove that we're not powerless. There's so much we can do. We just need to take the time to learn these techniques and apply them. That's really great. I really, I did have my eyes closed and I was picturing your diagram really clearly. Sure. <laughs> uh, I appreciate the holistic kind of picture it paints of uh, the, the different types of distractions, uh, you know, the positive, and then it really helped me piece everything together. Uh, oh, so so I really appreciate that. And, you know, now you do have me salivating for the book, which I know is not out yet. (laughs) Very soon. I appreciate that. (laughs) Uh, So that's that's really great. Uh, uh, Well, it's really been great talking to you. We've covered a lot of amazing ground. And uh, thanks so much for being on the Technology for Mindfulness podcast. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. And and if you are interested in the book, then I invite you to come to my website. It's called nearandfar.com. Near is spelled like my first name, N-I-R, so nearandfar.com. And uh, I'll be sending out updates and resources and tools and lots of freebies that you can use uh, for for tackling this problem of becoming indistractable. I really, really enjoyed speaking with you. And before we leave, I want you to make sure to tell people where they can uh, find out about your books and all of your other work. Where do do people go to find out more about NIR? Thank you. So if you go to my website, it's called nearandfar.com. It's spelled N-I-R, like my first name, nearandfar.com. And uh, I'll be giving updates about the book and bonus material and a bunch of resources and uh, keep you updated about when the book's going to come out. Uh, So that's nearandfar.com. That's the best place to find me. Fantastic. Thanks so much for being on the Technology for Mindfulness podcast. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us for this Technology for Mindfulness podcast with me, Robert Plotkin, and today's guest, Nir Eyal, an expert in how we form habits. You can find out more about Nir at his website, nearandfar.com. That's N-I-R-A-N-D-F-A-R.com. If you liked today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and share the episode with your friends. Those and all other links are in the show notes and check out our blog at technologyformindfulness.com for information and tips about science, technology, and mindfulness. And find out about our Tap Into Mindfulness course for helping you to take control of your smartphone at bit.ly slash tfm meditation. That's tfm meditation. I'm Robert Plotkin, and I'll join you next time on the Technology for Mindfulness podcast with Scylla Andrine, an independent filmmaker who will talk with me about her upcoming documentary called Like, which explores the impact of social media on our lives.